data stream is a word that can be used in multiple ways. A stream can refer to data in motion or data at rest. When a stream of data is in motion, an endpoint is receiving new pieces of data on a continual basis. Each new data point is sent over the wire and captured on the other end. Another way a stream can be represented is as a sequence of events that have already been written to a storage medium. This is a stream at rest. Pravega is a system for storing large streams of data. Pravega can be used as an alternative to systems like Apache Kafka or Apache Pulsar. Flavio Junquiera is an engineer at Dell EMC who works on Pravega. He joins the show to talk about the history of stream processing and his work on Pravega. If you enjoy this show and find it useful, you can help us out by subscribing. You can become a paid subscriber at softwaredaily.com slash subscribe, and it's $10 a month or $100 a year, and you get access to all of our old episodes without ads. That's over 1,300 episodes, and there's lots of content in there on anything that you're learning right now. Also, at softwaredaily.com, you can find question and answer and all kinds of other content relating to this episode, which can help you augment the knowledge that you're going to learn from today's show. Flavio, welcome back to the show. Hi, Jeff. Thank you. When we started this podcast about five years ago, there was a common pattern for building applications around large streams of data. And in order to get us to a conversation about the present, I want to start with this time in the past. And that was this time of the Lambda architecture. The Lambda architecture was this pattern where you would have fast, real-time data streaming into your system. And that fast, real-time data would be handled by stream processing. And stream processing was great. It was getting popular around that time. But you would occasionally lose packets of data. And this process of sometimes lossy stream processing could be reconciled periodically with a big batch process. Why was the Lambda architecture popular for data applications? One reason it was popular, it was because it, there were tools that, that enable people to implement that kind of architecture. But one thing that I find interesting about the whole discussion on the Lambda architecture is that uh, the main point that at least I extracted from the original post that Nathan Mars wrote was not so much about the architecture itself, you know, the split between speed versus, versus slow. It was more about the immutability of data, right? The fact that uh, if you have a source that where you can, not a source actually, if you have a repository of data, right? And you can keep your whole history of data there, right? So instead of having mutable data, you know, records where you are just updating place. So if you keep a record of the new data you're generating and you're able to reprocess all that, then it's easier to reason about systems and even gives you the ability of, uh, of talking about the history of the records and, uh, and how they evolved into a given state. And so that post for me was, was more about that or that whole idea of Lambda was more about that. I think that the fact that we went into, into this split, these two paths where you have one computer, say, with Hadoop, right? Hadoop MapReduce coming from, say, HDFS and, and another one using, I don't know, say, Storm was mainly because Hadoop was not re redesigned to give you low latency. 
And if you wanted to really process the data in this way, where you have your whole history of data, right? This say read-only or append-only history where you're reprocessing every time you, ne you need to, you wouldn't be able to do that with low latency. And so having a second path, a speed path, was essentially a patch to the technology that existed at the time. And that's, in fact, the main observation that came sometime after when Jay Krabs talked about the COP architecture. Right, so immutability was, was very, very important, but there was no reason why you really needed to do the, these two paths, right? This, this slow path and this fast path. Right, so if you have a source that, is even, that even stores data in a stream manner, you should be able to go back in time and reprocess if you need to. Right, there is no reason why you have to limit yourself to, to just uh, the, the tail of the stream, let's say. And so the Kappa architecture, this was an architecture that was built around a buffering system. And I'd just like to description of the Kappa architecture from your point of view. So from my point of view, the Kappa architecture or the idea in the description of the COP architecture is that you can have your history of data stored in a log form. So every time you, you want to make a change in your, uh, to your data, you log a new record to that append-only log. And if you want to process the data, if you want to derive results out of that, you process that log. And so you can do two things. One is you can tail that log, so essentially processing the new stuff that is coming. And at the same time, if you need to process it all, for whatever reason it is, I think people refer to accuracy a number of times. That's not necessarily the only reason uh, you would want to do that. There are other reasons like, I don't know, you, you change your code, there's a, a bug in your code that you fix, you want to reprocess data. And so you can just go back in time in your stream and reprocess it. Actually, not stream, you uh, refer to it as a log. And so I'm using stream and, uh, and log, inter append-only log interchangeably here. But the idea is that you have this, this sequence of uh, data changes, let's say, which is immutable. And, and as new data comes in, you're just appending it to the log. And if you need to derive any results out of that, if you need to populate a database, an output database, let's say, that you want to query upon, then you process that, uh, that, that data in any form that is suitable to you, right? So tailing the, the log or reprocessing from some arbitrary point in time. I think if we contrast these two strategies, the Kappa architecture and the Lambda architecture, the Lambda architecture was these two distinct systems. You've got the real-time stream processing system where the data is coming in quickly, but it may be unreliable. The, and then you've got a Hadoop-based batch system that is going to have very reliable but extremely slow path to being materialized as a view into your application. And the Kappa architecture replaces all of this with a change set of all of the events in your data architecture and those events were often being written into Kafka. And then the different consumers of those, those streams of events could materialize views however they saw fit. And I think one thing that was valuable about the Kappa architecture is just this decoupling. You just have this central data stream where people can build applications off of it however they want. What I, what I want to mentioned here is something that confused me for a long time about stream processing, which is the fact that if you think of a stream, 
you think of something that is moving. And in some cases, that is what's going on. Like you might have a stream of data being ingested, and every time you're receiving data at your endpoint from a mobile device that, let's say, is streaming location application location data to you, uh, you're getting this data. It's 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 kind of in motion, you might say. But there's this other notion of a stream, which is the abstraction of a stream that has been written and is maybe continually being written to which is like a data structure or a, you might say, a storage format, which is a stream of data, like historically. It's a historical abstraction, a stream of events that has been written. Could you help help me unpack this, what I think can be a confusing notion, the fact that a stream is not always like a moving piece of infrastructure? A stream, we can characterize a stream as parallel sequences of events that are being ingested. They are either coming from a data source. You can think of, a, I don't know, say, many sensors in an IoT application that are producing samples, right? So that, uh, that could be a, an example. You could also think of uh, some derived data out of processing. So that is data you ingested, you're processing it, and you are producing different parallel flows of uh, data out of your own processing. So all those are possible in a, when you talk about stream processing. And that ingestion of data, when you, when you are receiving that data and, and you are writing to, say, to, to your log, you can keep that for as long as you want. There's no reason why you should keep your, your stream data temporarily. Like, as you're saying, this is in motion. There are a number of use cases for which it's true, like um, typical pub-sub cases, you no know, publish-consume. You publish the data as soon as you consumed it, and consume is an application uh, is application notion, right? So an application decides when it has consumed it, right? And it acknowledges back, so it's done. Uh, then you can get rid of the event or the message or you know whatever you have in the in the system, right? So that would be more along the lines of what you're saying. But there, there's another class of cases of use cases where you don't necessarily want to get rid of uh, of your stream data or even th the sequence in which with which you have ingested away you want to keep that for reprocessing again using the case of uh, of say code changes or or bug fixes you process your day you realize that there was a problem and you want to go back in time right and execute the same code uh, the fixed code over the data right so if you don't keep your data in a stream form, then that will force you to go use a different system maybe because if you, or either you lost the data altogether, in which case you, you can't reprocess it, or if you just have moved that from a stream form to some other form, like a set of files, right? So you would have to process the data from a different system, which is inconvenient from a, from a development perspective. Well, just to complete the thought, so in the end, it's a very good point when you say, you know, I think of streams as dating motion, and that's true, you have a, an aspect of streams that is about the data that is being generated now, right? And those would be the applications I would say that are tailing the stream. And there's also the historical side, which is the same stream data within the same sequence that uh, I, I still want to store, right? And keep in that, uh, in that same form whenever the application wants to, uh, to, to process it. Okay, so the data that we're talking about, the streams that are being created, 
they're going to need to get written to some kind of system for storage. What are the requirements we have for that storage system for this high volume streaming data? What do we want out of a storage medium? We want it to be uh, friendly towards append only structures, right? So you you want it to be to provide high performance in the presence of a, of appends. You would like it to be to provide low latency in the presence of a, of small reads. So events are not always they're not always large. Sometimes you you can batch, right? You can batch and uh, and get higher performance, but you can always do that. So in principle, providing high performance in the presence of of small events that uh, that's also desirable. We have requirements for how to read this data and requirements for how to write it. What kinds of failures can occur during the read and write process of a streaming application? All right, so so let's go with the flow. So you you start with with some data source that is generating that is generating data, and as you receive that data, you want to write it, and and after you have written it, then consumer applications can read the data and consume in whatever form is uh, is um, makes sense. Now, from the source to the writer, so already there you can have uh, you can have issues, right? So the, the source. Uh, you may the source may crash, in which case, you you don't know if you'll be able to recover the events that I has produced or not, right? So the source perhaps produced some samples, uh, but it doesn't know if it has reached the the writer application or not, and if the source is able to remember this the data that it has generated and replay it, right? Then you should be able to recover from that uh, from that uh, from that fault. Similar to that, you can have disconnections, right? So the connection between the two may drop, and again, you don't know what are the events that uh, that have uh, that have made it or not, and so you need to uh, to take into account that situation too. Now, one the next step would be the writing application when it's it's writing to the storage system. You can also have crashes and disconnections, right? So in which case, when it comes back, it needs to be able to determine at which state it was at the time that I crashed, so that when it resumes writing, it writes from the last, say, offset or from the last event or whatever abstraction it's using to, to, to write. And then the data is stored, right? So let's say that we are able to deal with, uh, with all those faults, like the either source or, or the writing application crashing and the, and the disconnections, and, and then data is stored. Now, on the read side, you also need to be able to deal with, uh, with the same. The reading application crashing and, and resuming from the from the right position, or disconnecting and also resuming from the right position. One type of semantics in all this that people typically talk about is exactly one semantics. Or there are the, the three terms that people use at least once, at most once, and exactly once. Guaranteeing exactly once is hard, and if you think about exactly once end to end, you can't really provide it if you don't have application help. And so some of the things that uh, that we provide that you know you can provide so that you can have that exactly one thing to end are first the ability of tracking the position of, of the writing applications, you know how much they have been written. So in the case say they disconnect and come back that uh, they know where to resume from. The other is to provide say transactions. So transactions where you can determine whether some set of uh, of messages or events have been written or not. So you can determine that by knowing whether the transaction has been committed. And another one is 
to provide checkpoints. So if you look at a, at a frameworks like Apache Flink, so Apache Flink has this checkpointing algorithm to be able to provide end-to-end, exactly one semantics end-to-end. You can do that by providing the bit of checkpointing at the source and transactions at the end of, a, of the job graph. So if you do that, then with, the, again, the help of the application, in which case this is the checkpointing mechanism that Flink provides, you're able to provide exactly one semantics end-to-end. Okay. I'd like to give us a motivating example here for a stream processing application and maybe go a little bit deeper on the exactly once issue. So in a typical architecture, let's say we have a mobile application that is streaming location data. So maybe it's a ride-sharing application. Uh, I'm walking around outside with my ride-sharing application, and this application is periodically sending data to the server about where I am. You know, it's sending a lat-long coordinate system, and that data is probably hitting some back-end service like the, I don't know, user location tracking service, and maybe that service is writing the location data to the Kafka log uh, or the distributed storage log, whatever, whatever kind of storage system I'm using. Can you tell me more about how the data is moving from the user's application eventually into the storage system? And what are the issues, the maybe you'd call them uh, connection, uh, connection partitions that could occur in the networking layer and what would happen in this stream processing storage system that could create uh, difficulties around that exactly once processing? If you have an application, so you, you use as an application a, a, a mobile one, um, you also mentioned a ride sharing. So if you have events that are coming out of that, uh, of that application and you're trying to ingest them, into a storage system. Uh, you use Kafka as an example. So there is the, the there are the systems that, are, that we can think about. So there is Pervega, which is the one that I've been working on. Then there is uh, Pulsar, which are other systems that are, that are talk about messaging, messaging provider, messaging abstraction. So for those systems, things that could go wrong are that one, you lose, so the, the message never gets uh, to the system. In the process of uh, of getting it to to the publisher or or the writer, right? So to the to the writing application, that message gets lost because of, again a network partition or disconnection or a crash or something that happens in the in that process. And so if it never makes to the storage system, then you miss the event, right? So your log doesn't uh, won't have the 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 event. The other possibility is that uh, as if you have a disconnection and you don't know if you have sent the event or not, you duplicate the events and you end up having a duplication in your log, right? So these are all typical problems that uh, these log systems or these stream storage systems need to deal with. Right. So you might have this client that would have to do things like send multiple instances of the event or risk losing the event and in some cases, you're going to have the storage system need to reconcile whatever problems happen at the client layer or in, in the networking interface between the client layer and that backend storage system. Right. So, for example, in Provega, which is a system that I'm familiar with, the clients, the Provega clients, 
when it's writing, it informs the, the, the server side, the event number that it, had, it, it just wrote. And so if there is a disconnection, when you reconnect, it gets that event number back and it knows where to resume from. Right, so that's one way of avoiding that uh, duplicates are written from the Pravega client perspective, right? But then if the application, if the application induces a duplicate because the application wrote twice, then internally the, the, the client can't, can't prevent that. So the application also needs to use mechanisms to prevent that from happening. One way is to use transactions. You can, for example, create a transaction, you write the events, and if anything goes wrong, right, you abort the transaction, right, and, and you start over, right? So in that case, you avoid duplicates. And the systems I have mentioned uh, provide transactions. So Pravega provides transactions. So you have the big of, uh, of doing exactly that. You've mentioned Pravega a few times, and most of the listeners probably know what Kafka is. We've done a show on Pulsar. Explain what Pravega is and how it fits into this spectrum of backend stream storage pro uh, processing options. We have started Provega with the idea of uh, of building a storage system that has a stream as as its main primitive. Uh, we're coming from a background of storage systems, and so if you think of file systems, object stores, file and objects are well known storage primitives. But a stream is an abstraction that we talk about a lot in the in in these times because a lot of applications are built on data sources that are continuously generating data. And so it makes sense to think of a storage system that exposes a stream as its main primitive. So we departed from, a, from, from that observation that we wanted to have a storage system that had stream as its main primitive. Another key observation is that uh, we wanted this system to, to satisfy the requirements of cloud-native applications. And a few things that come to mind when I say that are the ability of storing an unbounded amount of data per stream. Right, so a stream can be long, can run for a long time, months, years, and that, there is no reason why architecturally you're not able to store all that data for a stream and in a stream format. The second one is elasticity. If you think about the traffic that is coming in, into a stream or a set of streams, there is no reason to expect that that traffic is static. It's always the same. So that traffic can, can vary over time. You can have periodic cycles, I don't know, daily cycles, weekly cycles, whatever kind of cycles that make sense. You can have occasional spikes and you should be able to accommodate those changes. And so elasticity, which in Provega we provide in the form of, uh, of scaling, is an important feature. So consistency I already mentioned exactly once. The ability of both tailing a stream and processing historical data. It's not desirable for an application that it has to deal with two different systems so that uh, it tails from one and, uh, and process historically from another. Ideally, we provide that uh, in a single system. And again, that's well aligned with, uh, with typical cloud principles, which are the ones of uh, having an amount of resources that accommodate your, the requirements of your application. Tell me more about the story behind Provega. So I'm particularly interested in how the timeline compares to the timeline of Kafka. So when did Provega get started in, 
how did that relate to what was going on in the broader data engineering community, particularly with regard to Kafka? So the project itself started in 2016 and has been going on since 2016. One of our main observations is that uh, it's important for a system that provides the, um, the abstractions I was mentioning, or the properties I was mentioning, to be more flexible internally and to not rely on storage of, uh, of the local servers. And so in Provega, we have this notion of, uh, of stream segments which enables us to do all the things I have mentioned. So the fact that a, a segment, that I can, I can break a stream into segments, allows me to have parallelism, allows me to change dynamically the set of, uh, of segments, allows me to spread segments across different servers. The fact that uh, I have uh, cloud storage backing Provega, so that also allows me to be elastic with respect to storage capacity. So all those things are things that we did not see in other systems, in existing systems. And we have made that uh, you know, our goal to build a system that had all that. So go a little bit deeper on how the usage of Provega might compare to Kafka, because I think, and sorry to position this completely relative to Kafka, but I think people are mostly familiar with the stream processing uh, and stream storage usage of Kafka. So I'd, I'd love to get a little bit more of a comparison in terms of the usage. Right, so Pravega allows you to ingest data streams from, from sources that are continuously generating data. And our main goal, as I mentioned before, is to ingest that data and store that data for as long as, uh, as, as the user wants it. So if the user wants to keep that data, say, for years, say that for regulatory reasons, you need to keep that, the data for, say, two years. There is no reason why you would you should need to move the data from outside your your system, say Pravega, to another system. If there is any possibility that uh, you're going to reprocess based on uh, on that data, so that's a typical use case of using Pravega as storage. So if you, if you look at uh, the hard drive of your laptop, if you store a file there, right? I mean, assuming that uh, it never breaks, you know, you expect to see that file there ever, right? Forever. So the file won't go away. You know, it's, it's not, there's not going to be any pressure for you to remove it unless you choose to. Of course, if you run out of space, you might decide to, uh, to clean up, right? And, and that's part of the problem that I mention, I'm mentioning. So if you don't have a good way of, of scaling your system so that you don't have to reclaim data as often, then you would end up being forced to delete the data from that system and perhaps moving elsewhere, archive it elsewhere so that uh, you can use afterwards. So this idea of ingesting stream data and keeping it for as long as you as you like is one of, of the core ideas of, of Pravega. The other one is the one of scaling, right? So as, as I was mentioning, Pravega, you have the ability of increasing the degree of parallelism and decreasing it dynamically. So we do that today based on um, on the ingestion rate of, of individual segments. And so if a segment, for example, gets hot, then Provega will, and, and if the stream is configured for auto-scaling, then Provega will transform that into multiple segments. And so it increases the degree of, uh, of parallelism for you. And so internally, Provega has this ability of creating segments easily, 
ceiling segments, keeping the order of segments so that uh, so that you can have this auto scaling and at the same time be able to to have key order. So all those are are important aspects that we provide in other systems now. Okay, so I think I'm understanding. If I use Kafka, Kafka is typically thought of as storage that will eventually be tiered out. Like you don't keep uh, five years worth of history in your Kafka cluster. At, at least I, I don't think so. Because I think a, a large portion of your Kafka is in memory. I think it is part of it gets snapshotted to disk, but it's it's not thought of as a long-term durable storage system. Am I understanding that correctly? Like usage of Kafka is usually not super long-term, right? It's exactly, exactly. And this is, has been a pain point for for a number of users. And this is something that uh, we have set to solve. Right. So I think the way that people typically alleviate that is by sending data from Kafka into a data lake is that is that right? Like typically, like you know, you'll stream topics to a file in like a parquet file, like a parquet file to to tear it out of Kafka in order to have some long term durability to your data. Maybe you could tell me about the workflows that people typically do to make their Kafka data durable. Right, so you can. It, that's one options that, uh, that that people use. HDFS is uh, is a typical option. So you take data out of Kafka and you and you write it to uh, to say HDFS and and you keep that your data in in HDFS files. But one thing I want to mention in that direction is that uh, that I think even the the Kafka community acknowledges that this is an important feature. In fact, there is a a proposal in the Kafka community to provide tiering. You know, to offload data to uh, to a second tier and and that be done or handled inside the cluster itself. So th- there is acknowledgement that building that internally as part of the cluster makes sense because you provide, in principle, the system will continue to provide all properties that are they're used to. One of the key problems is if you use a different system, that system will have a different API, different properties, and so guaranteeing that uh, you have a a correct system using two different storage systems, that can be complicated. And so that's why, uh, you know, so we, we started this in 2016. We, we, we had this, uh, this way of tiering storage and, and then writing the data there. And we're seeing this trend where other systems are doing this too. Pulsar added this to, uh, to their system. Kafka now is talking about adding it. And so, and so I think there is there is an acknowledgement from from the broad community, right, encompassing all communities of communities of these systems, acknowledging that th- this is an important feature. So, if we want to combine the best of both worlds, we want to have a system that can store our more recent pub sub streaming uh, data and have that data for fast access, but we also want to tier it to a storage layer that is cheaper and more persistent. If we want to combine these two things, is is that what you've tried to do with Provega? Yes, definitely. So that's that's clearly one aspect of it. So you can tail. We call it a stream. That's the abstraction exposed. But if you, can, if you want to think of that as a log, 
then uh, you know you're able to to tail your stream or or your log, which which means that you're reading from from memory cache and serving you know with low latency. But at the same time, you're keeping that stored in long term. We call it long term storage, right? We keep it in long term storage so that if you want to process the data historically, you can you you have that ability as well. So you're writing your observation. Okay, so Provega has these two tiers of storage. There's a tier one layer in Apache Bookkeeper and a tier two layer that could either be in HDFS or in an object storage system like S3. Describe this two-tier architecture in more detail. Right, so the first tier is used primarily as, I say, a journal. When we receive an append from an event writer, that will be persisted to Bookkeeper. So it's written to Bookkeeper. Bookkeeper, in its turn, it will make sure that it's written to, uh, to its journal. And when it responds back to the to, to Provega, it's persisted in the Bookkeeper servers, which are called Bookies. And so this, the segment store in Provega, which is, which is the name of our server, only then will respond to the event writer. So when we respond, when we acknowledge an event, we made it durable. So we guarantee durability for uh, for events that are written, and that involves only tier one ed- ed- so far. Now we asynchronously move the data to tier two so that we keep the data in in Bookkeeper under control, right? Because otherwise, if we if we end up storing like a lot of data in the bookies, then we would end up with the same problem as uh, as when Kafka was writing only to to brokers. Right, you you have a limited amount of uh, of local store, and then the brokers eventually, and and the bookies in this case would eventually run out of space. So we asynchronously write to tier two so that we keep the amount of storage in uh, in the in the bookies under control. And so eventually the data lands in uh, in in the second tier, which is the long term storage tier, and then we consider data at rest. Right, so those that's how the two the two tiers in Provega interact with each other. And if I want to integrate this into my data application, does Provega work similarly to Kafka? Like, do I treat it like a PubSub queuing system, or is this more of a just a storage format? Could you describe in a little more detail the usage difference between Provega and Kafka? Right, that's a very good point. So our API. Uh, borrows concepts from uh, from previous systems. Like in, in many systems that I, I, I have done in the past, you always try to keep some abstractions that are familiar to developers, so that it makes it makes it easier for uh, for the developers to understand how to how to use your new system. And so, th- there are similar concepts to uh, to Kafka, as you're saying. So we have the notion of uh, of event writers, which is the equivalent of the of the producers, and we have the notion of uh, of event readers, which is the equivalent of the of the consumers. And you can form uh, reader groups and the reader groups they, they coordinate internally to do the assignment of segments right so remember when I mentioned about auto scaling so the set of segments can be changing dynamically and so the reader the readers in a group need to coordinate so that's one of the features that uh, the reader groups the reader group provides and yeah so that's one aspect in which it's similar so writers event writers and event readers I also want to mention that we have other APIs we have, for example, a batch API that allows an application to read from a stream in an unordered manner, 
right? So if you read directly from the stream in a, using the event stream API, it will follow the order of, uh, of ingestion, right? So Provega internally keeps track of the history of segments and will make sure that it's served following the order of, uh, of, of creation of segments. If you use the batch API, you, you, you'll be able to read from all segments in parallel. So it won't follow any order, but for some applications, uh, you, that's what you, you might want to do. For example, if you, it's not necessarily a realistic application, but if you're counting words, you don't care, you don't care in which order they came, right? So you just, you're just counting the words and it doesn't matter. It doesn't matter the, necessarily the order, you just want to count them. So you have that possibility. We also, another API that we expose is, uh, is what we call the byte API, because internally we do not store events. Event is a concept of the API. Internally we store bytes. So the segments in Provega are sequences of, uh, of bytes. To get to, from events to, uh, to, to, to those bytes, it, you know, we need serialization and on, on the way in and deserialization on the way out. But internally, again, we, we store bytes. And so we have an API which allows you to just write a flow of bytes directly to a Provega segment. So all those APIs are available, you know, but the events-based one is one that is closer to concepts around, you mentioned Kafka, that uh, developers should be familiar with. Describe the typical user of Provega what is their situation when they begin using Provega? Do they already have a Kafka cluster or are they somebody that is just Greenfield looking for a stream processing uh, or a stream storage system? To help me understand the typical problem that a Provega user is having. I'm not sure that there is a typical user. We we have had all all of the ones you mentioned. We have the the greenfield ones that don't have anything installed and uh, and they're looking to move into stream processing. They're not necessarily sure what stream processing means and the tools that are available. There are the ones that already use something else. It could be Kafka, it could be Pulsar, it could be I don't know RabbitMQ, right? Just to mention other uh, other systems that are that are related. And for those, they have some background on, uh, on, on these systems. Let's talk a little bit about the usage more. So if I want to connect an application to a Provega cluster, what's the process for doing that? And what happens when I start writing data to it? So you can you can deploy Provega in a, in a number of ways. The the primary way we offer today is is with Kubernetes is deploying Provega on Kubernetes. We have implemented uh, Kubernetes operators. We have uh, we have one for the Provega components, a controller and segment store, and we have operators also for Zookeeper and uh, and Bookkeeper. So you following instructions we have uh, we have in our open source repository. It's easy to deploy it on Kubernetes and uh, and, and and get it running. For test and development, there is a standalone way of uh, of running it. I mean, of course, it's not a uh, it's not uh, durable, but for development purposes, uh, it works great. So you can start it locally and then start coding against it. And there are other options that uh, that we offer too. You can do I don't know Docker Swarm. You can even deploy the Java processes directly. And so once you've deployed it, then uh, then the, the way to start writing applications. Well, so if if you don't know how to start, there are a set of samples that uh, that people can follow to see how you know what is the what is the typical code that uh, that someone would write, you know, when when developing an application like this. But otherwise, it's mostly about learning 
about the concepts in the in the in the API, especially if you are in the event stream API, that would be the easiest one to start with because again, that's those are concepts that exist in other systems in a similar fashion and uh, should be easier for people to to start with. And then going to the other APIs and uh, and learn about advanced advanced features. Is the availability of the data that I've written to Pravega, is it available at a in-memory latency? Like, is it, I know that the tier one layer is an Apache bookkeeper. Is bookkeeper an in-memory system? No, no, it's not in-memory. No, bookkeeper, bookkeeper writes synchronously to a journal. So, so it flushes to the journal before it acknowledges back to the client. And it also has the notion of a, a ledger device that stores data. If you think about how I explain tiering in, uh, in Provega, it's a bit similar in a bookkeeper server, which is, which is called a bookie. So you write to a journal first and you, you make sure you flush to it before you respond. And then you, ha- you asynchronously write to, uh, to another device so that you can read from. And so the journal is, is primarily used for recovery. So that's how a bookie works. And so it's durable. It's not in memory. Okay. So does the usage here differ strongly from Kafka in that sense? Because people use Kafka as a PubSub system for rapidly transferring data from one place to another. It sounds like the usage of Provega is really more for this storage application. That sounds mostly right. I would say that uh, my understanding of Kafka is that there are applications which are interested in storing data longer term, not necessarily months or years as I was as I was proposing. But people do want to store data long term. And so and so this rapid exchange of messages, sure, there are some use cases that uh, that target that. But I, I wouldn't say that it's only that. And the format of data that I'm writing to Praveka so in, in Kafka, you're writing these things called topics. In Pravega, how does the schema compare to that of Kafka? Are you also, is it topic-based? It's a stream. We call it a stream. We call it a stream and you have a, you can specify, there are a few things you can configure. You can specify parallelism, in which case you can have parallel segments that you're writing to. So that's that's similar to the topic partitions in Kafka. One big difference is that you can configure dynamic scaling for a Pravega stream. And in, in that case, the parallelism of the stream may change over time according to the to the incoming load. Tell me more about how the partitioning system works. So if I write this stream that's fine as long as it's big enough to fit on a single machine, but eventually it's going to get so big that I'm going to need to partition it. What's the partitioning strategy for a really big stream of data in Pravega? Right. So so re- recall that the stream data ends up in long-term storage, which is a system that can accommodate a lot of data. It's supposed to be elastic. The systems we use for uh, for the second tier, they they can grow in capacity, and so and so in principle, you should be able to store as much data as as you like. 
or at least you're willing to pay for with respect to storage capacity. So there is no limitation from a single server. It's not like a, a topic partition, a broken in Kafka, where you're limited by the capacity of, uh, of the broker. And it is also important to note we only keep data in, in Bookkeeper temporarily. So after we have flushed, we have written it to, to long-term storage, then we can truncate that data in, uh, in Bookkeeper. And so even if, uh, if the stream has a lot of data, we have been writing it for very long, we don't need to accommodate all the data of the stream or even of a, a single segment of the stream in a single bookie. Right, you only have one say portion of a of the segment in a bookie for a given for that given segment. All right. Well, as we begin to wind down, I'd, I'd love to know a little bit about the engineering on the Provega team. You got a pretty big team. What's the hard problems that you're focused on in Provega right now? Hard problems we are focused in Provega right now. So we're looking to adding features, say for to support IoT applications and, uh, and say Edge. So those are areas that we're actively looking to. We are also looking to providing better support for, for beyond Edge and, and IoT, just geo distribution in general. So that's another area that we are exploring. And otherwise, we are looking to how to make Provega better or additional features we can add to improve the situation for AI and, and, and ML. So there is a lot of interest around, uh, around machine learning, and of course, and so we want to be a better system for, uh, for frameworks that support those applications. So that's another area that, uh, that we're looking to. So there is a, quite a number of exciting things that we're looking at. What would that look like if you wanted to build a system that was better for machine learning applications? Uh, for one thing, a, a lot of models that uh, that you train needs a lot of typically need a lot of data, and so the fact that uh, we store an unbounded amount of data or able to store an unbounded amount of data per stream, and you can have and you can have it stored in a single system, you can process the data coming out of a of a single source, which could be a Provega stream. So that would be one way of looking at it. Okay. Any other developments in the Provega project that you'd like to discuss? So with respect to open source, we are hosted by GitHub. We are looking to two things. Uh, one is is growing our community. Are you interested in, uh, in being a community-driven project? Today, it's, uh, it's, it's one company really working it, but we want to have, uh, to have more companies involved. So we are definitely after more collaboration and, uh, and, and more partners to, uh, to work with. And we're also looking to becoming, you know, incubating in an existing foundation that could be, I have a long history with, uh, with the ASF, the Apache Software Foundation, but there are other foundations uh, out there, like the Linux Foundation is also very uh, reputable. And so those are options that would be interesting for us to end up incubating. So it's possible that in the near future, we'll move out of, uh, of GitHub and, uh, and incubate in one of, of these other foundations. Okay. Well, Flavio, thanks a lot for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Yeah, it was a pleasure for me too. Thank you, Jeff. <laughs>